Blog Talk Radio. What am I supposed to say in Nate's place here, Mondo? He's supposed to be I think it's an extravaganza, actually. Um, yeah, yeah, we, we tend extravaganza. To, yeah, we we tend to have uh, quite a few listeners when it's just me and you, buddy. So that's <laughs> an extravaganza. <laughs> well, there you go. You've already tipped your hand. Uh, this is Aaron here from far out in California. Mondo in the studio. Uh, multitasking with clients who want some music production done, but Mondo just wants to be here. So yes, that's well, yes. But Nate, as he mentioned last week, uh, Allie got a staph infection, uh, and she has been in the hospital for the better part of a week yes. trying to deal yes. with that. So he is uh, still with her in recovery mode. So, and ironically, the last time we were going to have this special guest on, it was just me and Mondo as well. So, I think it's yeah. just, Nate is not supposed to be here to talk with our guest today. That's what I think. Yeah, yeah I think this is all about me and you today. I don't think, uh, yeah, I totally agree with you, man. But I'm really excited to have uh, our special guest today, man. Um, why don't you tell our tell our listeners who we have and what we're, we're going to do today? Well, we gave a little uh, heads up last week that Jeff Chu was coming back. Jeff Chu wrote a book called Does Jesus Really Love Me? A Gay Christian's Pilgrimage in Search of God in America. Uh, A great book to read through, uh, obviously, especially with the stuff. Uh, I'm actually really glad that it didn't work out last time Jeff was going to be on the show because all the Supreme Court rulings on gay marriage hadn't happened yet. And so now... This is all kind of happening in the media. There's conversations happening. And uh, so I think it's even more appropriate that we have it today. And a a few weeks ago, uh, during one of our segments, we talked about uh, Christians learning to have conversations. And I mentioned uh, a couple different people that could go to YouTube and watch how John Lennox debates, but he debates with uh, a certain grace and love that is so great. It's uh, it's not polemic. It's not argumentative. And uh, I appreciate it. Uh, our friend James Paul from Montana wrote in and he checked it out and uh, it felt like, oh, good, we didn't waste our time doing that little segment because I wasn't sure. <laughs> but yeah, I think today is part two of that that there's really two issues that we're going to be dealing with today. We're going to be talking about Jeff's journey, the things he learned. We're going to talk about uh, Christianity and homosexuality. But this is also hopefully going to be modeling some of, okay, how do we have a conversation in love and with sensitivity? I honestly don't care what side of the issue our listeners land on, because I know we've got people who are Baptists that listen and Pentecostals that listen, and we've got our Anglicans and we've got our Catholics. So I I imagine that 
the range of opinions on this topic is huge. That's why. Well, sure. My yeah. my concern is that the church continues to only prove the worst press about it. That that we're hmm. not capable of living in the world that God put us in. And we hmm. can say, yeah, wow. it's a fallen world, it's a broken world, and we're supposed to bring the truth. Yeah, but here we are. We're in it. And we've been called to love. And the second that we bring truth, without the love of Christ, we've betrayed the very truth that we're speaking. So wow. until we let yeah. you do that, we're just proving all of our bad breath. So today we've got the courageous Jeff Chu. We're going to have a conversation with him. And awesome. uh, we're going to bring him in right away because uh, we want to have a good long conversation. So yeah. we will be right back with Jeff Chu. The only way to love a soul is in its parts and broken hole to peer into its darkest space and offer up the deepest grace love that proves itself is true rejoices in the hardship too only love will suffer long then in trouble carry on love hurts on deep pain and gets a worse Love remains. True love will. All right, we are back on the Pirate Monk Radio Extravaganza, and we have Jeff Chu on the line. Jeff, where are you calling from? You're on the East Coast somewhere. I'm in New York City. New York City. I love New York City. If if I had three alternate lives and one of them did not include the huge amount of children that are up above my head right now upstairs, uh, I would live in New York City for a while. <laughs> well, Jeff, it is awesome to have you on the show. And uh, why don't we start just by hearing some of your story because uh, your book is about a year-long pilgrimage, but there is a whole backstory that led you to make that decision. So give us that picture. Sure. I think anyone who's ever been on a pilgrimage knows that the journey really begins long before you actually pack your bags and go physically somewhere. And my spiritual journey begins uh, in a very Baptist family. My great-grandfather was converted by Salvation Army folks in Hong Kong, and he was... I believe, the first Christian in our family. And another part of the family, my grandfather was converted by uh, Baptist missionaries in southern China. And he went on to become a pastor. And I've got other uncles who are pastors. My family is full of Sunday school teachers, uh, members of choirs, uh, deacons, all kinds of church workers. And it's been a huge part of my upbringing and of the culture that I grew up with. So I went to a Christian school for junior high and high school. Uh, churches were mostly Southern Baptists, but also some PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, congregations. And growing up, I realized I was different in junior high. But 
kids don't have words for these things. It's not always something you can identify as easily, especially in the 80s and 90s when I was younger. Nowadays, I think society's different. The media has, has definitely given language to a lot of people. But I didn't know what was going on. And uh, I realized pretty quickly when I started figuring out what was going on that this was not something that my family or my church or my Bible teachers would find acceptable. And so so there was this long period of struggle. Became a journalist. How did you know that? Was that based on specific conversation? Because they probably weren't talking about homosexuality at that time. So. When I was in ninth grade, I had a Bible teacher who was outed. He was having an affair. He was married. He had a son. He had a, another kid on the way, and he was having an affair with a man. And he was very publicly fired from school. And that was an opportunity for the administration as well as uh, the leadership at my church, because this teacher also went to my church, to talk about homosexuality. That was my first memory of there being discussions about this particular subject uh, in a very public way. And how did that strike you at that age? Well, there was one particular chapel. We had chapel every Friday, and the chapel after my teacher basically disappeared from class, uh, the principal got up there and he announced what had happened and that this teacher would be coming back. And it struck me, wow, that's what happens to people who are gay. They get uh, excommunicated or exiled, whatever word you want to use for it. There wasn't a lot of nuance to the discussion. And and so that was what I thought would happen to me if anybody ever discovered that I had these feelings, these feelings that this Bible teacher had had. And it was interesting talking to my pastor from that period. I, I, I talked to him last year as I was working on the book, and he apologized for how he and others in the leadership had handled that situation. Because he said, Jeff, there was no reason that we needed to bring the homosexual part of it into the discussion. The key, really, was that he was unfaithful to his wife. So the fact that we made the homosexual part of it front and center was, in his mind, a mistake. And he apologized for that, and I really appreciated it. But (laughs) <laughs> that came last year as opposed to when I was 14. So I thought being gay was the problem. It's it's so interesting. I was just talking to a guy uh, a couple of days ago, last week, but in the last week, and there is he has some struggles in his life, and he felt very isolated. And there is one church service. Uh, he used to go to a, a church with a very well-known pastor in Los Angeles, and there's one service that sticks out in his mind, just like that one. And it was when the pastor told a story about a man who was in his 80s on his deathbed. And he made this confession to this pastor saying, Pastor, I, I just, it's so hard. I still, even to this day, struggle with youthful lusts. And the pastor from the pulpit said this this was his uh, analogy for the church. Isn't it sad that after all these years that this man, even on his deathbed, would struggle with something that the Bible calls useful? And that's all he could draw from it. Hmm. And the language of that moment, if we step back, 
is everybody else who has any struggle that might be categorized in this very general category of, quote, youthful lust, you better never tell anybody. So you just shut the door. And it comes back to what you say at the end of your book on how important language is because those little moments, here I'm talking to a guy that, you know, heard that sermon, I want to say, six or seven years ago, and yet I'm the only person that he, or one of the few people that he feels comfortable talking to because that voice echoes in his head. And I think we don't take our words very seriously. And I love that you bring that out, that that just sticks with you when it's your life. Words are incredibly important. There was another word that really was thrown at me several times after in my mid-20s. I started telling people that I'm gay. And that was abomination, which comes up in the book of Leviticus. And that was the verse that some of the people closest to me chose to flag for me. And it's a tough thing to be told that your desires are abominable and to be told that God sees you and what you do and what you feel as an abomination. There wasn't a lot of nuance to it. It wasn't a part of a long, thoughtful, theological conversation. It was basically, well, if this is who you are and this is how you feel, haven't you read this verse in Leviticus? And I think those words and the way those words were used sent me away from church for a while. And it wasn't until this journey of reporting and writing this book that I started to really grapple with in a serious way whether it was possible to still be a Christian, a true Christian, and be gay. It wasn't until this book that I really started to ask those questions that I had been afraid to ask. And I realized as a journalist, I have some tools and skills that I've developed over the years that might help me understand why it is that we start with one Bible and we start with one God and we start with one Jesus, allegedly, and yet we end up on this issue. People who call themselves Christians end up in such radically different places. These words, these ancient words somehow are turned to fit so many different opinions on this issue. So that was really one of the core questions for me. Why is that? How is it possible that we are of one faith and yet so in disagreement on this? Well, let's, uh, let me just, you know, not to stray from your biography, but there's there's too much in each of these statements that needs to be broken down, and there's a huge logical disconnect that I just had with what you said. Here are Christians quoting a verse from Leviticus, and they would say, I'm just telling Jeff what the Bible says. It's the truth. It's God's words. How can you tell me it's wrong that I'm using something that God gave but on the other side, on a totally logical side, let's say that you're totally wrong in the conclusions you've come to and they're right. And yet by the language they're choosing, you're saying they pushed you away from the church where that same person would say you need to be to find God's grace and redemptive power. So it's almost like the desire is to attack the homosexuality not trust the spirit of God to do what only God can do to restore a person because what they're 
wanting for you, and I think in your book you believe it, they want what they see as best for you. They're loving you in that particular way, which doesn't feel very loving. And yet what they're doing is producing the exact opposite result of what their own theology would say would empower you to do what they want you to do. One of the things that I learned during my journey is uh, that most people mean well. The vast majority of people, no matter what they say, and you won't be surprised to learn I've gotten emails and letters from across the theological spectrum saying very strong things. No matter whether people say, oh, you should become an atheist, why do you still believe in God, you're a fool, or I know a great pastor who can do, do an exorcism and get the gay demon out of you, all of these people, I believe, mean well. Why else would they take the time to write me and suggest these things? What's interesting to me about a lot of Christians is that they in focusing so much on faith, they don't actually allow a lot of room for faith. And what I mean by that is they take it upon themselves to try to convert. They take it upon themselves to try to convict. They take it upon themselves to do so much of the work that Scripture tells us, and if we're going to believe in the same Scripture, I think you know we can, we can talk about this. Uh, scripture tells us is the work of the Holy Spirit and is the work of God. I have learned over the last couple of years as I've been working on this how little I know and how little I really understand about the mysteries of faith and the mysteries that are inherent in God. My little brain can't understand it all. And I've learned to be okay with that. I feel like in some ways my faith has grown because I've been willing to accept what I can't ultimately know. But too often I think that's uncomfortable. We want to be more comfortable in our faith and we want to be more sure. So I understand why people sometimes, in my view, overstep their bounds. They mean well, but ultimately they misstep. Yeah, and, and there, see, you get to be super gracious about it. So well done being gracious. <laughs> I get to be the, uh, the angry pastor frustrated at the church for for acting more like Pharisees who tried to control all that God gave them and for Christians who don't seem to believe the verses that say the natural mind cannot receive things of the spirit for they're spiritually discerned. And so we don't learn how to trust God in our conversations to do what the spirit must do. So I I totally agree with you that there are a lot of well-meaning people but I think there's that there's that spot that if we were honest, and I can look at my own life, where I start with a good desire for a person, but then pretty soon I'm moving into transactional mode where I'm trying to win this thing. Now it's not about what the Spirit can do. Now it's not about what God's doing. I'm trying to win it. And there's a line that I cross. And that's when I've now betrayed the essence of what it is to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit in that conversation with the person. And in the process, trusting God with the process he has them in. Right. I think part of it is about scoring points, right? So much of the discourse in our culture today is about scoring points. I want to prove my point. 
I want to make sure you know I'm right. If you look at the etymology for the word conversation, I think it's really interesting because you go back to the Latin and it comes from a Latin word that means the act of living with, to keep company with. And when you think about about it in that frame, it's a much longer term thing. You're actually walking with someone along a journey. It's not a five-minute thing. It's not a 10-minute thing. And the problem with a lot of the discourse about sexuality and about controversial topics like this is we're not thinking about the relationship with that person and long-term consequences and potential successes. We're thinking about, okay, how can I prove something right now because I have 30 seconds and it's my job to convert or to win over. So I think just the way we think about how we talk about these things is really important. As I was traveling around the country meeting people, hearing their stories, most of what I was doing was being silent. Occasionally I would ask a question, but when you first meet someone and you're trying to build a conversation and you're trying to build a relationship, the most important thing to do is not overstep and be be this overbearing person who's doing all the talking. I think one thing we forget to do is is to listen. Um, there was one man that I met in Valdosta, Georgia, a beautiful family. He used to be a, a Christian therapist, actually, and uh, his wife came out when their kids were 19, 16, 13, and 9. And we had several hours together. We were sitting in his living room. And at the end of our time together, he was crying. Tears were streaming down his face. And he said, Jeff, nobody has asked me for my side of the story before. People in his church had condemned him for not cutting his wife off and trying to hold the family together. And and he said, nobody ever asked me how I felt. Nobody ever asked me why I was making the choices I was making. It wasn't a conversation that those people in the church were having with him. It was a monologue. And I think there's too much monologue today. Uh, see, all right, I was going to read a quick quote from the book, but let me throw this out since we are being in California. Uh, I don't remember how many years ago Prop 8 happened, um, but there was a huge uh, – I have never seen the, the many churches in our county become more unified than during that Prop 8 time. And I've been a pastor in this county for going on 17 years. And everybody came together to do this battle. But all of the conversations were on the issue of gay marriage. It was never, I never heard one conversation or read one pamphlet that was about the people who wanted to get married. And as I told you, I invited pastors to come to a friend of mine who was a gay man who was in charge of the anti-Prop 8 group to talk with him so that they would see how all of this felt to him. And only one responded to that. But as I went through that, what, what really hit me, what hurt me as a Christian and as a pastor was, in all of Jesus' ministry, I don't see him deal with issues while neglecting the people that the issues affected. There was never issue disconnect between the philosophy and the people. Jesus, the incarnate God, was about the people. And so the fact that the church could be in such deep conversation 
and such frenzied conversation about the issue while completely ignoring the people that were having deep feelings of rejection and growing anger towards the church baffled me. I think it's easier, though. It's easier to talk about an issue than it is to talk about the complicated lives of human beings. It's easier to oversimplify. It's easier to paint in broad brushstrokes. One of the reasons I chose to focus my book on stories, besides the fact that I didn't feel like enough stories has been had been told, is because I wanted to remind readers I'm not an issue. The people that I write about aren't an issue. They're people. They're souls. They are human beings who are struggling to make sense of their faith and their God and their communities. And it's much harder to paint in black and white when you're talking about complicated human beings. But we don't do it enough because it's hard. I'm thinking about our listeners right now, my friends out there that are saying in their minds possibly well, wait, are you saying I'm supposed to change my mind about what I believe the Bible says about homosexuality? The answer is no. You can know people and feel for those people without having to change your convictions. I think that's hard for people to learn how to do. But you did that, so how did you learn to do that? So so for the listeners who are on the more conservative end of things, I want to spin things around and say, how does it feel when you read some of the commentary online about evangelicals and conservative Christians? How does it feel when you read some of the things that so-called liberals say about conservatives and evangelicals? It's very similar. None of us like to be stereotyped. None of us like to be described in overly simplistic terms. Often, people on the other side of the argument will throw around terms like bigot. And I think that's incredibly unhelpful. When I'm trying to have these difficult conversations, I stay away from loaded language that has come to mean things that are hurtful and ultimately not helpful for conversation. I try to stay away from moments where it's clear that people are just going to set traps or ask leading questions and are genuinely not open to having a dialogue. I think it's tough. I think there's prejudice on both sides. I've found an incredible amount of of prejudice against faith and against religion in the gay community, for instance. There's been a lot of pain and a lot of wounds. And I think that's one reason it's so hard to have these conversations is because we're all carrying around this scar tissue that we've built up from being hurt and misunderstood by other people, no matter whether you're conservative or a liberal, gay or straight. There's also that compassion. I think it's great that you say, look at how you feel when when that's in place. But I, I think there's also a compassion that if we just use our imagination a little bit, it's not hard for us to say, if I believe that homosexuality is wrong according to Scripture, and I'm asking Jeff Chu to say, okay, I believe this is wrong, and so I am not going to... Uh, pursue same-sex relationships. That's easy to say, but it forgets the person that I'm actually asking you to possibly live in a very isolated kind of place uh, that, that 
regardless of the truth factor. I can still hold on to that truth, but what I'm asking you to do is huge, even though the sentence was very small. And to not have compassion for the implication of the, quote, truth that I'm bringing to you is incredibly unloving. One of the most remarkable people I write about is a guy named Justin Lee, and he founded something called the Gay Christian Network, which is an online community that tries very hard to make space both for theological conservatives and liberals and everyone in between. There's a place for everyone in this community. And Justin's been traveling around to colleges and universities, and he's been orchestrating these conversations that are fascinating and very important. And what he does is he brings together students who belong to the Gay Alliance on campuses, whatever they're called on various campuses, and then he invites students from the Christian Fellowship groups. And I went to one that he did uh, in Georgia, and it was remarkable how he would guide people as they were asking questions, question their language, make sure that, that they were asking questions in a gracious way. And what struck me at the end of the evening was one atheist gay student said, I never understood how religious people see their faith as an integral part of their identity, just like I see my sexuality as an integral part of my identity. And there was a moment of understanding there. And on the other side, there were these very conservative Christian students who said, I never understand I, I never understood how you, on the other side of this issue, perceived the things that I was saying about you as personal attacks, you know, because I was thinking of this as a theological discussion. And that, for me, was the very beginning of the conversation. You know, you have two hours in a room. You're not really going to get that much done. But I watched the students Facebook friend each other on their phones, and I thought to myself, okay, this even if one relationship, one friendship comes out of this, where some of those walls come down a little bit, that's fantastic. And that's what we have to be doing more of. That, that is huge. Well, let me read a, a little bit for those uh, that are curious, because we keep talking about your pilgrimage and, and all of that. But for those that haven't read your book, they might not totally get it. So let me read a little bit. Towards the beginning of your book, you said, I decided to embark on a year of travel by plane, by bus, by train, and brainwave, asking the questions that have long frightened me. My hope was to find ans some answers at last. My plan was to crisscross America, as well as the spectrum of American Christianity. My goal was to understand why those who call themselves followers of Christ start from the same point, a God-man who lived 2,000 years ago and left behind a church with his name on it but ended up in such radically different places on the issue of God, the church, and homosexuality. So there's a couple things that struck me with your book. Number one, uh, in most books I've read on Christianity and homosexuality, it is an individual's personal experience that becomes expert witness. And I really appreciate it that yours was a more journalistic approach of saying, okay, I have my personal experience, but that doesn't make me an expert yet. That makes me an expert on me, but not on this issue. And so you really engaged the question, and you didn't just go to the people that agreed with you, but you went to people like uh, 
the Exodus and the Westboro Baptist folks. Uh, and I thought that was, uh, the Westboro Baptist chapter, by the way, I thought was incredible. Uh, again, because you were far more compassionate than me. I imagine I'm far more pugnacious than you, as many of our listeners can attest to. And, and I loved how you said, in fact, I might quote it, because this, this made you like uh, a superhero. So I'm going to make you a superhero. Uh, it's hard to read because there's an ant crawling across my iPad right now. Um, but you know what? A little nature involved in our show is good. You said uh, people were afraid for your safety when you were going to the Westboro Baptist folks. And for those of you that say, what? Who? That sounds vaguely familiar. The Westboro Baptist folks are uh, the people that go and picket everything with incredibly nasty signs, uh, go to funerals, go to any anywhere they can. They're just, yeah, I have words I could use, but it would be hypocritical based on all this love talk I'm using. So... Uh, <laughs> People were afraid for your safety, like you were going to get beat up there or something. And you said, my own biggest fear was not my safety. I figured that Westboro was too media savvy to hurt me physically. Rather, I was haunted by a more appalling thought. What if I found that they were not, in fact, crazy? Worse, what if I decided they were right? And those few sentences speak to an openness of your heart to say, I'm on a genuine journey to find out what God has to tell me, not just to prove my case and then write a book about it. And I thought, okay, I like this Jeff Chu guy. He's a good guy. So which, on this on this pilgrimage, what stood out as, as like some of the most impacting or the, I know that's probably not fair, but the most impacting aha you got in an interview or a visit? I think for me, one of the the most memorable and toughest interviews was uh, with a young man named Gideon Eads. And I met Gideon on Twitter. I tweeted at one point pretty early in my year, conundrum, how do I find a closeted gay Christian to write about? And he tweeted me back under a fake name, and we started corresponding, and we emailed and texted throughout the year, and then at the end of the year, he was the last person I visited. Gideon lives in a rural town in Arizona and grew up in a very strict Baptist family. He is one of three kids. He works really hard. He is a kind, sweet guy, the kind of boy that every mom would want to have. And he would tell me stories about what would happen, for instance, after his two gay step-uncles would visit his mom's house. His mom would wipe down all the hard surfaces with those bleach wipes and Febreze the house and say to her son, not knowing that he's gay, You don't know where they've been. For me, it struck me because here you have this incredibly devout woman and her incredibly devout son, and her true colors are showing. She is saying what she fears and what she believes about gay people, not knowing that her son is gay. And I thought to myself, this young man 
who is determined to stay in this family and is determined to stay in this town, who could easily run off to the big city and, and get rid of this stuff. He's incredibly brave. He's trying to hang on to his faith. He's trying to hang on to everything that he knows and loves and values. And he kept saying to me, I just want them to know I'm the same person. Whether I'm gay or straight, I'm the same person they've always known. And that's really stuck with me, that visit with Gideon. His example of quiet faith, his example of perseverance in the face of something that I think a lot of us would just run away from. And it was a reminder that there are so many stories out there of ordinary people who are actually really extraordinary. I think sometimes my colleagues and I in the media, we're biased in favor of the stars and the celebrities and the big names. But everyday life is so dramatic and the traumas and the struggles and the joys it's no less interesting than anything that happens on TV. So so Gideon is really, from that journey, one of my heroes, one of the people that I really look up to. Well, I, I'm going to repeat the statement that he made, that his biggest desire was that his parents would know he was the same person if he told them he was gay. I know... I'm thinking of a guy right now in the church that has not told many people of his, and he is a he is a person that would say he has same-sex struggles, but he's chosen to live a celibate life. But he is does not want to share that with people because he knows the second he shares it, that's what they're going to think of when they talk to him. And they're going to forget about or at least minimize all that they know and love about him before that conversation. That's that's a huge it's a huge thought. What does it say about us not just as a church but as a society that ha- that we judge people so quickly based on who they're attracted to? I don't sit around as a gay guy just thinking about sex all the time. I don't think straight guys, well, <laughs> most, one hopes, uh, sit around thinking about sex all the time. And I'm not going to go to a pubescent 16-year-old and judge him for his desires. You know, there's more to each of us than who we find attractive or who we want to marry someday. There's so much more, and it's so reductive to take one part of a person's life and reduce them to that. Just it's boil really about, them down. Yeah, it's really about giving people dignity as as an individual, regardless of the judgments we make based on our biblical interpretation of social issues, moral issues. We still give people dignity for all people are made in the image of God. And that's why every person's story is as interesting if not more interesting than what we see on reality TV. How could it not be? We're made in the image of God. And to give that dignity is the first step towards drawing people into the love of Christ that don't understand what Christianity is about. I thought it was also interesting. Gideon said this, um, and it struck me. Uh, it says, from the church, Gideon speeds north as we head towards his house 
he tells me about the strictures of his family on the list of things that his family's against, tattoos, alcohol, and Harry Potter. I used to be against these things because they were, but I never understood why. I used to just have standards or rules for no reason that I knew of. I thought that was an amazing statement to parents that he, his mom had no idea how she was isolating her own son who loved him. And you wrote in there how much he, he honors his father as a spiritual person, even though there's been these hurts and isolation. But his his parents have clearly gone the pharisaic route of simply imposing structures instead of talking about life and the wise. I think regardless of where we come out theologically uh, or hermeneutically, how we interpret these passages, there are a lot of these young people that are not getting very good articulation from parents. I think there's a lot of fear. I think fear drives a lot of these decisions, whether in parenting or in preaching or in church structure. And I think it's really important to step back and say, okay, am I making this decision or this value judgment based on something I'm afraid of or something that I'm standing for? And I think it's a tough thing to do. That kind of self-awareness is often not really our strong suit, especially in the context of the church. I think there is a fear of having candid conversations. It's that whole slippery slope thing, right? If we open the door to having a conversation and we don't say straight out that it's wrong, does that mean we're allowing room for Satan to work? And there's an incredible lack of trust there. We minimize God. We minimize the ability of God to work in complex situations and be God because we're so worried that everything is going to rise and or fall based on what little decisions we make. Mm. Wow. Well, there are two other questions. I'm looking at the time because I know you've got time constraints. And I have two questions. I'm trying to figure out which order to go in in case we don't have time for the other. I'm going to go with this one first. Uh, there was, you know, it's very pleasantly surprised at how careful you were with your words. And even as we're talking now, you're very careful with your words to make sure that there's a lot of grace and space for other people. In your chapter on Exodus, there were a lot of emotions starting to poke through that were uh, showed a little more hurt or frustration or anger, I felt, than other chapters. Was that true? I don't know if I would call it anger. I was. It was suggested to me when I told one of my college chaplains about my struggles with, with my homosexuality that I go to an Exodus group, and I chose not to do that. I think Exodus is a complicated thing for a lot of uh for a lot of gay Christians. And just for, for the listeners out there who don't follow this stuff all the time, um, Exodus is, is the main umbrella organization or has been the main umbrella organization promoting uh, the idea that you don't have to be gay, that you can choose to be straight, you can work through it in many cases. And just a few weeks ago, they announced that they were shutting down, which was a big deal. I think 
that line of uh, argument that I can choose not to be gay, that I can be more obedient to what Scripture calls us to, and as part of that obedience, I might eventually marry a woman because that is the holy thing to do. I think that's a hard thing for a lot of people to accept. That was a hard thing for me to accept, and I ultimately couldn't accept it. So I, I, I might have allowed more of my personal feelings to show in that chapter. I would say that my personal feelings do come out in most of the chapters because I didn't want to pretend to have this objectivity that I didn't have. I don't think that's right as a journalist. I think this whole fantasy of objectivity is a particularly American thing. In a lot of other countries, journalists are pretty open about what they believe and are pretty open about their biases. And obviously there's pros and cons to that. But uh, it, yeah, if you saw more emotion there, that's that's interesting to me. I, I don't disagree with it. Well, in this in this conversation, uh, you know, I thought we're probably going to talk about the gay marriage issues that have come up at the Supreme Court, but I'm actually kind of glad that it didn't because my interest isn't really to tell everybody how to think here, but how to engage the people they're going to be in conversation with. So, what would you wish for the listeners as they are at work, hanging out with friends? talking about what's happening today in our world in America revolving around homosexuality. Well, yeah, so much of the debate right now is about the gay marriage issue. So what would I wish for for, for the listeners? Well, as a person who just got married last fall, um, I would wish for those listeners of yours who are married to model great marriages for me. Show me how great marriage can be and let there be examples of godly marriage. That's what I, that's one thing I would ask. In terms of relationships with people and conversations with people, I would love for more of us to be become better listeners and to see the long view of things, to know that God's timeline is not our timeline, to know that a seed, whether a healthy one or an unhealthy one that you plant in a conversation in a matter of seconds can stay with someone for years and that your words matter. I think words are incredibly important and difficult and we use them too carelessly. So I guess those two things uh, would be at the top of my request list. Well, we're giving you a request list today. So there you go. You, you put your request out. And now uh, I'm, I'm sure our listeners know anytime there's pastoral stuff that comes up, I have to jump on that. Uh, and you have some strong thoughts about pastors. Um, and in part, even when I think of Gideon's mother, uh, I don't feel a lot of judgment towards her because I think she was probably not equipped by the people that were supposed to be equipping her to even know how to do better than what she did. So she was left to her own to figure it out. You wrote this. Once I believed in pastors, I was raised to believe in them, to honor them, to buy them meals and homage to their life and sacrifice and godly devotion. I was taught they had special insights some heavenly hotline that gave them wisdom and knowledge and all these things that I did not have. 
I did meet with ministers who were humble, thoughtful, courageous, and kind all across the theological spectrum. And I've also shared some of their stories. But what I encountered more often was cowardice. In the introduction, I mentioned that I found pastors to be more sheep than shepherd. If you were looking for examples of that in the following chapters, there were few, because with nearly all the pastors I contacted, uh, we never even got to the interview stage. So many of the pastors I approached were afraid to even discuss the H word. What would you say to pastors in America right now if if you could give them uh, what's your request list for them <laughs> uh, uh let me preface that by saying i do have immense respect for pastors my grandfather was a preacher my uncle still is and it is such a tough line of work it really needs to be a calling because the the sacrifices that you have to make and the demands that there are on your time and on your spirit I don't think it's like any other line of work. So so let me preface anything I have to say by, by saying that. Several pastors said to me privately over the last few months, I read your book. I loved your book. I'm going to be thinking about your book, but my church is not ready to have this conversation about homosexuality. My congregation just isn't ready. And I laugh at that because I think to myself, that is so not true because this conversation is happening in family rooms, at kitchen tables, quietly on people's cell phones, and you are not a part of the conversation. You need to lead the conversation, not just wait for it to come to you whenever you think people may be ready. This issue is happening and is unfolding not just on the front pages of newspapers, but in families, because sons and daughters are coming out. Every family is touched by this in some way, whether it's a niece or a nephew or a mom or a dad or your your son's best friend or your daughter's best friend. And these conversations are happening, and it would be a terrible shame for the church not to be a part of the real conversation that is going on on the ground. I'm not talking about the political conversation. I'm talking about the personal and the spiritual conversation. Some pastors will respond to that by saying, well, I just need to think things through. I'm not sure how to have this conversation. And my response to that is to say, look, as someone in the pews, I don't expect a pastor to say that they know everything. I don't think you have to have a definitive answer to every question. Why are pastors so afraid to say, I don't know, but let's explore this together. Let's pray about it, think about it, ask the Holy Spirit to guide us in this conversation. I don't Wait, think pastor, a shepherd... Interjection. Hold on. Yeah. Hold on. I'm doing a pastoral interjection. I can't because I'm a pastor, so I can do whatever I want. And you have to honor <laughs> um, I'm not ready to have this conversation. What... The pastor is actually saying, and I, and I can say this because I'm a pastor and I think like this sometimes and it's stupid, <laughs> is I want to have my answer ready so that I can just expose it at you when you have a question or an issue, which means that pastors by and large are the worst listeners and conversationalists because they wait until they have it all figured out before they'll have the conversation, which is not a conversation. Right. You can go on now. Go ahead, yeah, Jeff. so once again, we're talking about monologue, not dialogue. 
And I think it's an incredibly liberating thing, not just for the congregation, but also for the pastor, liberating but scary thing for a pastor to stand up and say, I'm not sure I have all the answers to this issue. Let's work on this together. I think it telegraphs to a congregation that there's a journey for all of us. It's not a hierarchy. Oh, this person has the letters REV in front of his name, so he knows everything. There's a humility that it requires, and maybe that's one of the issues too. But I I would love to see that from more pastors, that kind of shepherd who's really with his sheep, as opposed to the shepherd who is giving the sheep directions from 10 miles away. I mean, what kind of shepherd is that? The shepherd with the bullhorn <laughs> up on the tower. Yeah. Well, Jeff, uh, the book is available. Does Jesus Really Love Me? A Gay Christian's Pilgrimage in Search of God in America is available on Amazon. Know that. I got it on Amazon. Where else? Just anywhere? Find it should be in everywhere. most good bookstores. If it's not in the good bo- in, in your bookstore, it's probably not a good bookstore. Um, but mo- any bookstore should be able to order it. Uh, is it in many uh, Christian bookstores? It is not a book that a lot of Christian bookstores are going to stock because I allow too much room for people with different theological uh, conclusions to speak in. So they might have to go support Barnes & Nobles or... Uh some local independent bookseller or Amazon will do. Uh, is there any other way that listeners can get in touch with you if they have some questions or some thoughts that they just want to throw out? I'm always happy to uh, hear from readers, listeners, whoever. Um, DoesJesusReallyLoveMe.com is the website. DoesJesusReallyLoveMe.com. And my email address is Jeff at ByJeffChu.com. So by Jeff Chu, like it's a byline. So Jeff at byjeffchu.com. Jeff, thank you for your courage in your journey and your openness to share it with people. Uh, that is is huge to me, and I appreciate it greatly. I love you, man. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. And this was the Pirate Monk Radio Show. Next week, we should have the whole crew back with us. Mondo will poke his head out of the studio, and hopefully Nate will be back as well. So until then, this is the Pirate Monk Radio Program. Give yourself time to heal. Shame.